0: All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. We are very excited that you joined us. If you haven't tuned in, this is the show where we talk to celebrities, thought, and industry leaders to really discover their journey to success. I am super excited that you're joining us. This show is like no other. I can promise you that. You might laugh, you might cry, but you will definitely leave inspired and gain a whole new level of insight into those people that you follow love and admire all right welcome everyone to another episode of the jake dunlap show happy new year everybody uh very excited for today's episode in particular uh today's guest is a former navy seal with combat deployments in afghanistan the persian gulf and then after serving as a sniper teacher right? And we'll get into that, into what it was like being a sniper and SEAL Team 3 for almost 10 years. He found a new purpose as an entrepreneur, impressively bootstrapping his business to eight figures plus. More recently, he's a New York Times bestselling author who's written and collaborated on 14 books. I've got to get your, I've got to figure out how you can write 14 books and run an eight figure company so we can catch up on that. Later, uh, but I want you to please join me in welcoming combat decorated Navy SEAL sniper, CEO of Soft Rep Media, and whiskey lover Brandon Webb. Brandon, thank you for joining the show.
1: Uh, thanks, Jake. Great intro.
0: <laughs> it's good. We do our homework here, man. Um, so, so again, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit, and you know, for those of you who tune in every week, you know, you know the drill here. Uh, but we'd like to start in the beginning, and I got to tell you, this is a, this is going to be a fun one. Um, so Brandon, if we go back and we talk about kind of your early days, so obviously there's all the things that you've accomplished in your, you know, call it adult life. Um, you were born in Canada uh, from what I understand, right? Born in Canada, moved to the U S at age seven and lived in a boat. So I want to talk about And then, and then obviously you traveled. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy just, you know, all the different things. So, so tell me like, what was it like growing up in a boat? You know, were you always in Ventura, were you traveling all over? And then I definitely want to make sure we talk about, you know, the Tahiti at age 16 and what happened there. But what was, you know, yeah. early Brandon, you know, like growing up?
1: Well, you know, my mom, my dad had met my mom in Malibu, California. He, he had moved from Toronto at, at a young age. Like his father actually kicked him out of the house for not cutting his hair. This is like in the 60s, right? <laughs> And he found himself in Malibu, met my mom, moved her to Canada. They got married. So it was like she went from North Hollywood to like interior British Columbia, um, you know, near Vancouver, but we were we were up in the middle of nowhere, mountain country, Canada. And I grew up in this small ski town called Kimberly. and you know, by all means had a great life. I was kind of a hell hell child, which I talk about in my first book the red Circle but my mom got me into sports really skiing and and then I had this you know really you know I had fond memories of my childhood but my dad had also built up a construction company he ended up losing everything in the savings and loans crisis he had a big project that went that went under and eventually had to declare bankruptcy so it really was tough on him he he took it very hard you know uh, and, and but well, my mom and him always had this dream to sail around the world. So they said, you know what, to hell with it. We're gonna buy a boat, move the family on the boat and we're gonna pursue this dream of like cruising and taking our kids, wow. you know, on, on adventure. So we bought a boat in Vancouver, a, a 50, about a 47 a foot catch, sailed from Vancouver um, all the way down to Ventura, California, mainly because my dad found... Found superintendent work and concrete tilt-up construction, so they, they, he found really good work in California because L.A. was booming. And we lived on the boat in Ventura Harbor, and and we would save up money, and then we took a, a big year trip to um, mostly Baja, Mexico. We sailed from Ventura down to uh, Cabo San Lucas, and then went up sea Cortez, and it was an amazing time. I, I think I was around 11 years old and just had a blast running around Cabo before there was any hotels it was just a field with donkeys and you know they had two bars one of which the Van Van Halen guys um, called Squid Row it was a it was a blast and then um you know came back and you know we're kind of doing the repeat to save up money to go on a much bigger trip and uh, then I ended up my mom got me my first real, my dad's like, you need to get a job. You know, he's seeing me, he's hanging around with my buddies at the harbor. And I think he was worried about me getting in trouble. Sure. You know, And so I got this really crappy job as a, basically a nighttime janitor for a boat store. So I would mop and sweep the floors, take out the trash. And it's one of those jobs where you're just like, this this freaking sucks.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like the ones like, oh, it was yeah. easy. I just like sat behind a desk or.
1: Yeah. It was just like, you know, mopping these floors going, you know, I don't want to do this kind of work, but it builds character. And then my mom said one day she came home and she said, there's this scuba diving boat that wants to, they need a young kid to kind of help, help with odd jobs, take out the trash, help people off of the equipment. Uh, when and this boat would leave for like a day or two or three day trips to the channel islands to take these sport divers diving so that the owner bill and the and the captain mike gave me a gave me a shot Um, and i worked a couple weekends and they say hey you can work for us for tips and the tips were really good you know it's a i was you know 12 about to turn 13 and and then i mentioned this because this was what i think really kind of you re occasionally you get these jobs that are super influential and are and are this you know you, you're at the y in the road right and and this yeah. kind of set me on the path to become a navy seal um as well as showed me i remember working this job and I, you know as a 12 year old kid making 100 bucks over a weekend is pretty good money yeah. and the the one of the captains taught me how to scuba dive so I got certified that summer and I remember thinking to myself as a you know 13 year old kid um I was like wow this work doesn't have to be terrible like this is this this is this like adventure I'm on and having this having incredibly fun time doing this job working my ass off but it didn't seem like work and I remember it it made an impact on me as a 13 year old um so i worked that boat for a couple years and then my dad i remember he had come home one night and and my mom was actually always very entrepreneurial and adventurous she got a job cooking on the offshore oil platforms she would sometimes take a helicopter to the platforms in the middle of the channel where the channel islands are and cook for this oil rig with her best friend uh, Betsy, who became a business partner of her later later in life, um, you know my mom's like flying out, swinging on a rope to get to the platform. <laughs> you know it's just crazy stuff. And um, my dad came home one night and he said, "Look, I don't want to be the the family that's always talking about this big sailing trip that we're never going to tra- take. Take so we're going to sail to New Zealand. We've got the papers all set up for the visas and and I remember." Thinking to myself, well, that's great, but I don't want to go. I'm I have this great job. At the time I was 15, the owner was actually paying me a salary and I was making tips. So I was making incredible money for somebody with no no overhead, right. no rent, no bills. So what about school?
0: Is like school even happening at this? Like is there yeah, still school, school
1: or yeah? Yeah, yeah. School was on and off. Like I would do, we'd go on a the Mexico trip and I would do home home study. Uh, which, which I prefer. I I mean, I have my thoughts on education today. I I think YouTube should be teacher of the year. Um, But
0: hundred percent, I actually talk about this a lot, not to go on a tangent. It's it, my son's seven, right? So he's in first grade and I'm dead serious. He, he, well, one, he already knows how to work YouTube. So we don't need to worry about that, but, and especially kids coming out of college that's, you know, instead of teaching them geometry, teach them how to Google and YouTube things, right? Like, yeah yeah, teach them how to teach
1: themselves almost
0: yeah yeah. i mean all the answers exist right it's a yeah so anyway i'm i'm yeah my son
1: you know he's he's um in college now but he taught himself how to code and machine learning all online um through youtube videos so yeah exactly all Um, right so
0: there's a shout out for YouTube. so all right so this trip you don't want to go on um yeah making
1: good money yeah, trip I don't want to go on. and like every you know 15 15 year old kid I wanted to like get my driver's license and chase girls and my buddies and um, I didn't want to go on this this trip it was just as a teenager it was I was kind of and that's a difficult time in the teenager especially boys you know just you puberty and all the other stuff that goes along with yeah. it so uh but but off I went you know and we did kind of the, we went from Ventura, California, sailed down the Baja, over the mainland, all the way down to Acapulco. Acapulco, I turned 16 at the Acapulco Yacht Club. Then I, then we went from Acapulco over to the Marquesas Islands, which is the first island chain in, the, in French Polynesia. And it was amazing, like beautiful islands. And the Polynesians are the ones that en, ended up sailing in settling uh in hawaii right so it's like a lot of history but my dad and i started to be at odds with each other because i had all this boating experience and it was like having two captains on the yeah, ship and i had a, I had a big work. chip on my shoulder and we had a couple of big arguments and then when we made it to tahiti um in Papeete, the capital he he basically we had a big blow up and And it almost got physical and my mom was crying. My sister's crying. And then my dad's, you know, he said, look, I think you're, you're young. You, you know, you've expressed, you know, before how you wanted to stay back. And he's like, why don't you see if, you know, the owner bill will take you back and and let you work on the boat and you can kind of go on your own way. And so we decided I would leave home at 16 in Tahiti. And so I called you know this is before cell phones or when cell phones were in these big suitcases, right? I remember going, you know, dialing up Bill. like a from, sat phone. Uh, like, I can picture yeah. it
0: now there's like big, huge, like, yeah, you know, like, we you, didn't you had even to unzip have zip
1: it. Like, I, I gave my I talked about this to my dad this past Christmas. I you're just giving him credit. There wasn't even GPS when we took, yeah, this trip, that's right. So, yeah, they didn't even have that type you, of stuff for those types were, of, like ocean voyages. Yeah, sat nav, you had land based navigation. Called loran C for the U.S., but when you're an international, you had no. You it was like navigating like with the sextant and the stars, like the old sailors. Like it, it's no joke, and and I give my my parents a lot of credit for taking the family on a trip like that, where you're just like off in the middle of the ocean. Um, but anyway, I made a landline call. Bill, the owner of the boat that I I grew up working on, said, "Look, come back. You finished your junior year." just work on the boat. And then and, and if you want, I'll, I'll make you a captain. We'll get you tested with the coast guard and all this stuff. And so off I went, I had a, I grabbed a backpack, packed some stuff, a couple hundred bucks. And I was from 16. I was on, been on my own ever since. Um, you know, I decided being a boat captain wasn't the life I wanted. I, I wanted something more. Um, and I think, you know, as it, as I grew up became you know, 17, 18 years old. I, I wanted to prove myself that I could do something um, and, and kind of make my own way. And and I found the SEAL teams. I, I ended up reading Marcinko's, the founder of SEAL Team Six, Dick Marcinko's book, Rogue Warrior, which is an amazing read. And that inspired me to kind of explore the SEALs. And and to be honest, I, I didn't have great grades. I had this weird academic record. I. I my since I was a kid I wanted to be a pilot I, and then Top Gun came out I was like I want to fly there jets but I just but I knew that I didn't have I couldn't get into the academies my grades were shit and so I was like well I could join the Navy and be a Navy SEAL and they'll pay for my college so that's it. the end that started the, the path that I ended up taking and it took me a while because back when I joined the Navy in 93 you could not get a direct contract for the seals you had to take a regular job if you wanted to go fast and get to this to seal training quickly you took a very crappy job like a cook or a a boatswain's mate where it was like a three-week school and then off you go to buds but if you didn't make it you're going to end up cooking on a ship somewhere in the (laughs) middle of nowhere so i i ended up getting i qualified for a search and rescue swimmer air crew job so basically flying in helicopters being a search and rescue swimmer and operating the sonar equipment in the back of the helicopter and, and that was a great job but in hindsight it kind of locked me into a longer a longer period before i could try out the seals and
0: any crazy stories um, about that man i got i mean that to me sounds like one of the most crazy job like i i you know i picture like the i mean on the your you know your partner's probably the coast like the coast guard right where they're like you see these yeah. videos where they're just like these crazy like any any wild stories or any like one memory that stands out
1: yeah no look in the co- total props of to the coast guard they have one of the best search and rescue programs in the world those guys do rescues because they're involved in the primarily like civilian rescue right, right? and yeah. there's and we know in america any idiot can get a <laughs> buy a boat and sail it off and no, right. no no offense to my to my own parents but you know we, you, the people get themselves into trouble a lot off the coastal waters of, of america so those guys get a ton of rescues in dangerous conditions primarily the navy search and rescue in helicopters so they operate off of off of the navy ships uh air i was on an aircraft carrier so anytime that their flight ops going on the helicopters are first to launch last to land because they are primarily circling off the 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 right side of the ship or or the starboard side what we call the navy in case a pilot ejects then we're there to go get them but the navy has such a great safety record it's it's extremely rare that that, that those accidents happen it does happen um the to get to make a long answer longer the 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 most craziest experience I had was um, getting my crew chief qualification one night. Uh, I was doing my test flight. We had, we had done some night vision. We were flying in the Persian Gulf on the Abraham Lincoln. We had been on night vision. We'd come off night vision. And so it, it takes your eyes about 20, 30 minutes to adapt to the darkness. Again, once you've been on night vision, it's like going from day to nighttime right we're in the persian gulf there's no moon it's cloudy so it's very dark um and and you have an overcast so no starlight no moon and we're having to land on this destroyer to get gas to make it back to the to the mothership and the crew in the back i i was with rich freeze senior crewman and and freeze basically i the pilot said, okay, we're slowing down to 90 knots, so we can slide the, the cabin door open on the right side of the helicopter, because we would take this gunner's belt, strap it around your chest, and we would help spot the pilots as they kind of come in for this approach. You know, because the the destroyers are this tiny little, you know, it's like landing on a, a rooftop in New York City. It's a very tiny pad, only, you know, the, the helicopter pad is rocking back and forth. Um, and, so I remember opening the door, and normally I stick my head out, and you can see the lineup lights, um, the approach lights, which the lights turn different colors to to let you know you're on the correct glide slope. Right. And I remember I couldn't see any lights, and I was confused. And then I I looked up on the horizon, and there, then I saw the lights of the ship, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. And right then, we hit the water. Oh. Shit. And. And we hit slow. Thank God we all would have been dead. The, what happened was the pilot Bennett got vertigo. He didn't tell anybody, and, which was his first mistake. And this guy was not, I, I still to this day would say everything to his face. Like he just wasn't a, he was the kind of leader and, and officer and pilot that nobody wanted to fly with. He was a total jerk. I think he knew it all, right? right. And this guy, His co-pilot, however, was this nerdy guy, Kennedy, who everybody loved. Because Kennedy was just, you know, he was just a down-to-earth guy. He was goofy um, and smart, but didn't talk down to the crewman in the back. Um, So we got, anyway, water started coming in the cabin. I'm thinking to myself, I got this bottle that's called the Heeds bottle. It's like a little mini scuba tank. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to crash first thing that happens in a helicopter since it's top heavy with the rotor it flips upside down in the water And we have this dunker thing that we go through this training and i think you know hang on for the ride and i'm going to put this bottle in my mouth and hopefully swim out of here and water started coming in i started screaming for altitude rich started screaming for altitude kennedy the co- goofy co-pilot was the hero of the whole thing he bennett was like t- talking to himself mumbling Kennedy took the controls pulled the collective yanked us out of the water put an auto put us in like an auto hover mode which is like an autopilot and we kind of said oh shit everyone was shaken up right we just went from like certain death to right. hovering and the now the destroyer is saying what the f- hell is happening to you guys you went off the radar now you're back It took us four attempts to land on that ship because we needed gas. Um, And we got on the ship. Kennedy, you know, Rich was the senior crewman in the back, really did a great job kind of boosting the confidence of Kennedy and just kind of being the, you know, guy in the back, backing him up on the stats. And so we got gas, we landed on the carrier and we told, we had to file a report an accident report mishap report and i remember the maintenance officer nobody believed that they said there's no right. way you guys landed in the water but they put the helicopter in the hangar bay and they took off the back sections of the tail and like five gallons of seawater poured out and they were the maintenance officer i remember looking at he looked at me and he said holy shit he's like <laughs> you guys weren't kidding so both pilots kennedy instead of being like i mean i guess he had some fault at play for not you know he's up front as a co-pilot but they both got their helicopter commander papers pulled i uh, think largely got a slap on the wrist um, i don't know what where either of the two ended up at but you know it was a big deal the thing is there was a lot of politics involved because the co of the squadron wanted didn't want it to be a big deal cuz
0: yeah he wants a perfect have, record and yeah like
1: yeah yeah so it's always politics involved and and but anyway that that was the most hairiest that's wild dude flying there and uh, yeah wild, it was man. pretty it was pretty crazy <laughs> and then
0: how did you so then how did you make the move or like what was it really about wanting to get into the sniper group you know what was it for you that you're like hey well, like, this is you know this is a path or you know what i want that to wasn't
1: even a choice of mine i just so fast forward i i got my second my first package got declined for seal training my second package got got accepted. And I went to seal training in 1997. With uh, class 215, you know, 220 plus started, we finished 23 graduated, I ended up going to seal team three and getting in my first seal platoon. And I was a new guy. And and as a new guy, you're kind of like in the fire department on probation, you're kind of earning your keep, you just kind of keep your mouth shut your job. And I wasn't a very good shot, I never grew up firing guns, and I was kind of a bad, you know, compared to the rest of the class, a bad shot. Then I got really good, and my platoon chief, Dan, pulled my, me and Glenn, my, my, one of my close buddies, and we were both new guys together. He pulled us in the office and he said, hey, you guys are the best shots in the SEAL platoon, I'm going to offer you a chance to go to sniper school. And at the time they didn't offer new guys, sniper school, it was only offered to senior guys that had kind of proven themselves. Um, and it was a tough school. We had, it had a high, it had a high failure rate. So we were thrilled and scared, scared as well. Cause we're <laughs> like, we don't want to let, we don't want to be the guys that fail out. Right. And that's, I remember he said, don't F and fail, you know, like oh, great, words of guys encouragement. Here. Right. Yeah, yeah, whatever you guys like do, that. don't F it up, right? So um, off Glenn and I go at the end of our our uh, training cycle. And when you're at a SEAL team, you get into a platoon, you have about a 12 to 18 month training cycle. Then you take an operational readiness test and then you're able to deploy overseas. So this was right at the end of that training period we went and I got the qual. We both did, we did, both did well. Um, and that kind of put me into this world of snipers. Um, and then I did my second platoon deployed to Afghanistan, came back, was one of the few snipers that had operational experience and got pulled into advanced sniper training. And then, uh, the SEAL sniper course had, which is three months long was going through an overhaul process. And, um, um, one of the, one of the senior chiefs, Bob said, Hey, you know, we, can you come down and help us with the first pilot program and give your input? Cause you got This is a, he asked um, the sniper cell, which is the advanced training um, um, arm of of the SEALs at the time. So we came down and he was impressed. He said, hey, do you want to be on this full-time cadre? And I, I said, well, I'm about to take my, I'm about to take a break and take, you know, I want to be a BUDS instructor, finish my degree and kind of take a break. And he's like, hey, we're at war and the course needs you. Um, get down here. So I kind of was like, okay, he, he made a good point. So I gave up like a really cushy job being a buds instructor, and, and went to work at the sniper course. And then eventually, uh, Bob retired, and and then I got put in charge as the course manager. I was twenty eight years old running the the sniper program, and uh, it was a great experience. But I had I had hit burnout, and that's why I ended up getting out of the navy. But it was an, you know, an amazing experience. I write about it extensively in all my books, yeah, uh, including including uh, mastering fear, because it really taught me. We were able to work with some of the best performance coaches in the world as we we're modernizing the sniper program. Not not just with technology, but also like asking ourselves the question, how do we be, how do we be better teachers? And we really adopted this mental management and positive psychology to the program. Um, and it made a huge difference. We took a thirty percent failure rate and took it to almost zero. We started graduating everybody because we really, we really just became better teachers. Um, and that's something that's translated into my, my, my post military career as an entrepreneur. You know, just the mind, the mindset. It's one thing to hold it yourself and know that I've been through all this crazy, you know, seal training and and adversity. And I have the tools, but it's another thing to kind of empower your your team and your employees to have that same mindset um, and, and use it to to hire and and screen people out because it really comes down to I, I've seen there's two types of people you either have a solution mindset or a problem mindset and you can tell when when it when the going gets tough you tell who has that mindset instantly. Because people are complaining, it's like the sky is falling, and then other people are like, No, this is great. So we've got this, it's not going to be a problem. Um, so, you know, take it the, this pandemic as an example. I made a decision and, and got my team together in the pandemic. I said, Look, guys, we're going to have a great pandemic. Everyone's freaking out, they're panicking. You know, what? You know, we're not going to spend our days, you know, watching Netflix and you know, hiding in the, in, in our house, like we're going to do some stuff, some cool stuff. And so I had a great pandemic and it was all about just mindset.
0: All right. I want to get into that. But I have one, I have one question first is what are the, what do you think, you know, people have seen the movies, right. Or maybe seen Bradley Cooper or some of the other, right. What, what do you think is the one thing about being a sniper that most people have no idea of? Like what, like most civilians, would be like, oh holy shit, you know? Because I think a lot of people again, it's it's just like a very specific view. So I'd just be curious from someone who's trained some of America's most legendary snipers and been one himself. What what like what don't people know?
1: Um, so a couple things. Um, I think, and I'll keep it specific to the SEAL program. The SEALs, what we what we ended up learning was that when we looked at, okay, how do what are the case studies of the actual sniper missions happening in the SEAL teams? Because we're such a small, small community, most of the snipers were being deployed individually. So they didn't, you can't afford this traditional shooter-spotter pair, you know, where you have two guys working together. And what we found out further was that the way we were testing people in the training program, they, the pairs would share a grade. So you would have a guy that would be a really good shot, but didn't understand ballistics, but he had a good spotter. So he would, they would both pass. But when they're, when they got to the, when they graduated and started working for real, they had some weaknesses because they didn't really understand ballistics and how to self spot. So we identified that and started training the, we started at the end of the program, gave the sh- individual tests to make sure that the, the graduate who was a sn- SEAL sniper had a very uh, complex and grounded understanding of, of ballistics and could spot for themselves. And it's as simple as if you're making a, say, a 300 meter shot and the first shot doesn't hit, you got to decide what to do, right? And so you have to understand okay, if If I took the shot and I missed and I didn't see impact while I'm high. So how, how much do I need to correct immediately to make sure I get, or, or either it's a correction on the elevation knob or you hold on the, on the scope, you bring the the sights down and hold, but you have to understand, okay, what, what's my range? What's, what's my hold or what's my dial down to make sure I get an impact and then I'm able to make and I'd rather guess low. So I get impact. Then I can measure it and be the third shots, a kill shot. And so you have to train these guys. And so I think what people don't understand about the the modern seal sniper is that the, they are extremely deadly and effective on the battlefield. And, And I remember getting calls from army units that were, that were, were, um, getting SEAL snipers loaned to them in Iraq. And these commanders were like, what the hell are you teaching these guys? They're just like killing machines. (laughs) So it was a a compliment, but that I think, you know, patience, intelligence, all that other stuff, but specifically to the SEALs, like they, these are guys that can operate in any environment and and be a lone sniper. And they have a very good understanding of, of the whole range of, of ballistics, long and short, and, and how to make these complex adjustments very quickly. Um, that's, so that's, that's, that's wild, something man. not too many people know about.
0: That's wild, dude. Yeah. And, then I think you were starting to get into it too about, so you, you mentioned you made the transition. So you're like, all right, I, I got to do something different. You choose kind of an entrepreneurship path, um, start, you know, software rep, um, you know, a few years after. And so, what was it that made you want to get into that? So you kind of start to get into kind of sharing your story. You publish Red Circle, same time, Soft Rep uh, comes out. We'll put links to to, we'll put links to you know the the older books, and we'll put links to the new stuff because I want to talk a little bit about that. And uh, it sounds like a pretty cool uh, pretty cool new endeavor. I'm excited to read the the new book. Um, So talk to me about you know again like why why entrepreneurship and then why Soft Rep.
1: So entrepreneurship, I I ended up realizing as I was going to night school and I got interested in business. My parents are very entrepreneurial. Both, both became successful later on in life after having a bunch of you know, success, some failures and, um, and such, which is all learning experience. But, but I grew up in a very entrepreneurial environment. Even both sets of grandparents are entrepreneurs. My, my grandma on my mom's side had owned a bunch of collection agencies in Los Angeles in the 70s as a woman. Um, you know, my, my grandparents in Canada, my, my grandfather worked for general electric or not general electric, Canada electric, and then it was a blue collar to white collar guy. And then afterwards did a big development, a mobile home park and on a Lake and then started was a, was an active, uh, hard money lender. So I, in hindsight, I'm like, wow, I grew up in this very entrepreneurial environment. So I, I decided I want to be my own boss. Um, I, my first startup out of the Navy, was a training facility. We I had raised three point eight million with a couple partners, and we we're going to do this big training facility out in the desert east of San Diego because the police, fire, emergency services, and the military needed more space to train. Um, we had I saw this running a sniper course because we ended up consolidating. On the East Coast, at this uh, remote location in the Midwest, uh, because we had no place to train and, and train snipers in California. So I, I saw this and I'm like, wow, we really need a we need a place. Long story short, we got the approvals. It was extremely tumultuous environment. It was, you know, political, environmental activism. We got the project approved. And then this was in 2008, housing market collapse, economy drops out and we lost everything. Like I lost my life savings. Uh, the project got killed. I mean, it's, it's a lot lot more to it, but short version is <laughs> I had to yeah. walk away and it was tough for as somebody that had, you know, that was my first big failure professionally. And it was tough a tough pill to swallow. But I realized falling back on my kind of mental management training in the sniper program as a teacher, I said, you know what, I just have to look at this as a learning experience and carry it on. So I ended up going, taking a job, a defense job with L3 um, as a sales executive. And and then I got into writing. I started writing just as a creative outlet for magazines. and I started blogging. Then I got asked to run a blog for military.com and have had big success. And I was, I was making you know, top income. You know, working for L three, and having more fun doing this blog on the side that we're paying me fifteen hundred bucks a month for, and I was making like, you know, well into six figures at L three, and have but having more fun doing this like blog, and then it gave me the idea. I was like, because I grew the blog to their top traffic blog in in six months, and they tried to hire me, but and then the editor Ward Carroll at the time for military.com, he realized I made more than he did at L3. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this isn't going to work. So I decided to start Softrep, mostly as a military culture blog because yeah. I knew there was guys like yourself and other people out there that were really interested in hearing about these stories and different characters. And what happened was as the writing team grew, you know, the what what they realized that the news outlets, because journalism has changed dramatically in, oh, in the past couple decades, right? It's become very much like news entertainment. Um, reporters don't go to faraway places and and dig up stories. They they write articles from the comfort of their apartment in Brooklyn, New York, right? And these these young journalists have maybe one passport stamp in their in their passport book right and it's probably cancun or something like that um and they're Favo, writing about, squid, yeah, yeah, and squid rose probably squid uh, rose and they're writing about syria and uh, afghanistan they have no idea what the hell they're talking about so, and, and this is across all spectrums of yeah. right and left liberal and conservative news outlets my writers started going this isn't what i read in the new york times is wrong so they would write a correct piece and source it because they have friends overseas and we started breaking news and then these at news outlets nbc new york times fox would call us and go who the hell are you guys so the site turned into a news site organically and then i had this dilemma okay i'm running this entertainment site that's now become a news site and how the hell do i manage that i'm not trained as a journalist and so we decided early on that we would try and be as apolitical as possible with the bias towards the truth. And and we just kind of had to put our own set of ethics in place. And we made a bunch of mistakes along the way, but you know, that that soft rep and today, we're, you know, we're, we're, you know, we doubled in size from last year, we should double again this year. Uh, And look on the way, as in 2000 i started the company in 2012 we added an e-commerce component in 2015 that that blew up but it it created so many problems cuz we did a subscription box called the gray club and it was just an entirely different type um, of business it was yeah. managing product inventory supply chain you know forecasting and i made a ton of bad hires just mistakes and that and then covid hit and that business, the supply chain blew up and I ended up selling to a competitor. Um, I, I, I went back to school, actually. I went to Harvard Business School. This program for entrepreneurs called OPM. It's a two-year program. Because I was like, I need, I thought I knew what the hell I was doing. I need to go back to school and learn, um, you know, really have an understanding of of uh, and some fundamentals of business. And then I'm like, oh God, just sitting through these classes on how to hire properly. How <laughs> You're to build just like, culture. Uh, hey, as a CEO, like, oh, look, I can I... totally,
0: you know, we've got 40 yeah. plus people. I can totally relate, man. It's like, yeah. So
1: I was just like shaking my head, like, what the hell was I doing? But now, you know, you and I had the conversation at the beginning of the show before we started recording about what I'm excited about, what I'm focused yeah. on. I'm kind of refocused and re excited about soft because it is it's something that's very special and unique. And I, and I think, you know, people are generally tired of the divisiveness in the, in the country and, and they want, they want a place where they can go to, to get, they know at least that they're getting an, an honest look at things. And Rep is that like, we do a really good job on foreign policy defense news, um, you know, kind of shining the light on, on issues that, you know, I, I think people are ready to talk about with veteran suicide, the VA is. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of incredible people that care at the Veterans Administration. The problem is it's a massive bureaucracy. And if a veteran enters that healthcare system, their chances of suicide go up 30 percentage wow. points. That's a big fucking problem that needs to be addressed. Um, and it it's because, you know, the VA, I think, I almost think it's too broken to fix. I think they just need to get rid of it and, and give veterans access to private healthcare. But um, these are the kind of stories that we do, and war crimes, and you know, these stuff that that needs to be talked about, and 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 holding the government accountable for for twenty years of fair, failed foreign policy. Right? You look at you know the underscore of 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 that is the Afghanistan pullout a complete disaster we we've, we've left we've armed the very group that we went in to take out of power in in 2001 right now they're heavily armed backed by the chinese india has a huge problem with domestic terrorism that's going to increase because china is at odds with india now they have this you know border to kind of push you know push terrorism into india through afghanistan so it, it's like a big problem but <laughs> without yeah, that going you, that the you tangent, wrote
0: about, I mean, you wrote about part, some of this, I, I again, I haven't, I haven't yeah. read Like I, I know the title in like 2014, right. In yeah. Yeah. I mean, and but, so,
1: you know, that's kind of our sweet spot with, with soft Rep news and, you know, as well as still covering the, the cool, fun culture stuff on our podcast and the interviews that we do, we really try and, and, uh, give it, give the American reader, a you know, straight straight talk uh, with regards to what's happening with our own readiness of our defense and domestic security at home, but also what's happening in the world. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to know that you can make a difference that way. And then we, we, at the end of this, at the end of last year, we said, okay, what, what else can we do? Because government isn't going to solve our problems. I think that's clear to everybody by now like what's our cause that we can get behind and, and it's veteran mental health. So that's, that's kind of something we're focused on as a business, um, a, you know, along, along with growing the subscribership, but that's a cause that we've, we've kind of decided we're going to, we're going to take up and, and focus on. So yeah, I'm excited. We'll, link, about we'll link to all
0: this for people who want to get more information, right. And who want to you Thanks. know learn more, help participate, et cetera. So we'll, we'll link to all this um, as Thanks. a part of this. So, you know, again, um, as we, as we start to kind of, you know, wrap up here, um, let's talk about this next chapter for you. Right. So again, you're yep. running a company that's like you said, doubled your, over year, year going to double again. And now you're like, you know what? Not enough. I don't have enough to do apparently. Like I'm going to start writing, <laughs> writing, uh, fiction. Right. And working with, uh, you know, if people who don't know John David Mann, he wrote the you know, go giver, um, pretty you know, successful series of, uh, books um and you know what else do you like so what made you get into that and like what are you excited for about that you know about this next chapter
1: yeah so i'm you know i love creating things whether it's product stories so i i consider myself a creator the the reason i pivoted to fiction is because i wanted to create more and kind of push you can push a lot of stuff, and talk about a lot of stuff in fiction that I couldn't like, look, I, I worked for a certain agency for a couple of years after I left the military, um, signed an NDA, can't talk much about it, but I can sure as hell write about it in fiction. so that um, it, it just gives me that creative outlet. yeah, um, and so I went to John, John and I have written a ton of books together, all nonfiction, and I had written. Uh, a big chunk of uh, our first book together, "Steel Fear." I I watched some videos. I read Stephen King's on or his book on writing, which is an amazing book for anybody that wants to write, whether it's a blog or or um, or a novel. And, and just said, okay, I started writing this book, which actually is based on a true story. When I was, we talked about that helicopter crash, that same deployment we had a sexual predator on the Abraham Lincoln, you know, this floating city of 6,000 people. This guy had assaulted six, seven women and he never caught him. And I was, years later, I was just holding this thought going, imagine if it was a serial killer. Because everyone asks like, how could this happen on a Navy ship? I'm like, the ship is not equipped to deal with complex crime. It would be like locking the doors to a football stadium and there's a killer on the loose. You know, are are the security guards running around the yellow jackets and radios equipped to deal with this kind of crime? Not at all. So it's similar on a Navy ship. And so that gave the seed for Steel Fear, which is about a serial killer on the loose at sea. And, you know, so it's kind of like military slash, you know, thriller genre. Thriller, yeah. And, And so I had written a big chunk of it and gave it to john he's like this is amazing I, and i kept pushing because i'm like john you're an incredible writer
0: let's <laughs> yeah. do this
1: and so we did it and this was in the pandemic we sold it for the biggest advance either either one of us got we did a multi-book deal with random house um we're you know about to sell it to to tv series and yeah it's it's been a great a great thing and, and it's you know, John's a pleasure to work with. And we're building this franchise kind of like a Jason Bourne franchise out. We we finished Cold Fear, which takes place in Iceland, had some really human trafficking. There's a great SEAL versus SEAL scene, like just cult like tooth and nail to the death. I don't think anyone's had a navy seal versus navy seal scene. Um, very much like that movie Old Country or No Country no for Country Old for Men. Men. Yeah, We had this like psycho SEAL that's that's kind of on this you know killing like basically trying to hunt down our main character finn and uh they end up having this like fight to the death on the frozen ice you know over this lake in iceland so it's it's pretty intense but that's that's been a super fun project so it sounds amazing man um i'm excited yeah to check we're it building out. yeah we're building that franchise out so that that's kind of what i'm up to lately as opposed to being a dad you know i got a you know, my daughter's about to go out to college. My son's a sophomore at St. Andrews in Scotland. So uh, good stuff.
0: That's awesome, man. Well, look, we could keep going on for, for forever. And we're <laughs> going to link to Steel Fear, too, so everyone can check it out. Um, you know, again, I think what a lot of people hopefully, you know, the, the path to entrepreneurship, the path to finding like your right thing, I think takes a lot of different paths. And, you know, from your story, at least, you know, because I'm kind of listening and, you know, kind of absorbing a lot of this. It's, you know, I think really a true kind of testament to continuing to find, you know, like having an having a vision of what you want to do, but also doing the things that you want to do, you know, and doing the things that yeah. you're passionate about. And and like you said in the very beginning, like like you said, that 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 moment that you had in the very beginning of your life, right? Where you're like, work doesn't have to suck, right? Work. You yep. can actually end up making a lot of money and start to do the things that you want. And so, I hope a lot of people can listen to the story, et cetera, and think about it's that time of year. Everyone's thinking about what they should be doing anyway. And I think your story might, you know, poke some people to to go and and do something that they're excited and something they're passionate about.
1: Yeah, it's and it's look. It's never too late. You know, you look never at the, too late. The, the founder of McDonald's. Um, also, I read a case study at Harvard about the founder of Spider. Ski equipment, who also founded Pearl Izumi, I think, the bicycle components business. That guy was 47 years old when he decided to found two companies that just hit it out of the park. He ran Spider until he was in his 70s and they sold it. I think they sold the private equity, but 47 years old, totally reinvented himself. So it's never too late for anybody to kind of, that, whether man. it's a career change or, or starting a business.
0: Well, yeah, a hundred percent. We've had a lot of people too. We've, we had a Rob, uh, I don't know if you know Rob Soravalo. he's a, a Navy guy as well. And he is, I mean, he, he didn't start his career in the Navy till after college and, you know, became a top gun pilot eventually, but, you know, just wait, you know, 26, like, what am I doing? Like, what this isn't yeah. what I, that's not the path I wanted to be on. So there's a lot of stories there. And, and again, I think people can learn a lot from you know, as they read kind of your books and your history as well. And we'll link to all that. So Brandon, big thank you. Appreciate you joining us for the show.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jake. All right.
0: Awesome, man. Well, look, I loved it. I hope everyone else loved it. Make sure leave a rating, tell us what you think, uh, as as, it's your thoughts on the episode, and we will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap show. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of The Jake Dunlap Show. Uh, Really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are, the success, the trials and errors. And I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform. And make sure, more than anything, to go over to jakedunlap.com. That's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests, additional details notes. We're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com. So go ahead, go over there. You can subscribe there as well too. And we will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show.